the price that somebody pays for Cherokee up front, it's always going to be lower than the actual value they could get later. So we want to get them started. We want to solve their initial pain points of why they come to us. It's usually around the cancel flow or the failed payment recovery. The really effective churn fighting methods, it's not why they came to us, but it's something that we find. And so it really turns into that kind of collaborative relationship where we can expand them into different products and save them more money than they thought initially. Welcome back to the Honest Marketing Podcast, where you learn proven strategies to grow your business without selling your soul. I'm your host, Travis Albritton, and today I got to take a trip down memory lane and reconnect with somebody from a previous business, previous career, Baird Hall, uh, who is the co-founder of Churnkey, which is an agency company that works with subscription businesses to reduce churn, increase LTV for their clients. And we talk about his professional journey and the different businesses he set up and the lessons he learned with each. And then also dig into the nuts and bolts of why reducing churn is such a critical component of building sustainable revenue in your business. Because it doesn't matter how much uh, you are growing. It doesn't matter how many clients you're getting, how many customers you're getting. If you have just as many leaving out the back door every single month, you can't grow, you can't build momentum, and you're just fighting the inevitable of just being exactly where you are and not being able to reach your goals. So really appreciate all the things that Baird shared in this interview. Definitely stick around to the very end. Well, I'll give you my number one takeaway from my conversation, but here it is. Let's dive in. Baird, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Good to see you. Hey, Travis. Thanks for having me. It's been four or five years, I think, since we chatted. It's good to good to reconnect. Yeah, it's funny how you know life works like that. Like You connect in one place and one season of your professional life and then through a just random happenstance you end up crossing paths again uh so we'll dig into some of that here in a little bit uh but i'd love for you to just kick off by sharing a little bit about yourself your professional background with startups in the SaaS space and then tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now yeah so baird hall i've been starting software companies since 2015 and uh the first start was pretty rough we tried to build Essentially, if if any of the listeners uh, are familiar with Clubhouse, which is like a new social listening type app, we tried to build that back in 2015 before investors even knew what podcasters, what podcasts were. Um, And it was a total disaster. It was a lot of fun, but from a business standpoint, it didn't work out. So that's kind of where we got started um, as our first crack at building a software company. And uh, luckily, some of the tech that we had built rolled into a podcast marketing company called Wave, which we scaled up and sold in 2021. I've also started a video editing and captioning SaaS product, uh, which I still own called Zubtitle. And then most recently working full-time on Churnkey, which is a, a company that was built out of all the churn fighting that we did over the years. And uh, a lot of the things that we have learned and and built internally for the previous companies, we kind of package it all up. And now full-time, we help high-volume subscription businesses uh, improve their retention and fight churn with a couple different um, tools. The, I mean, I've been trying to figure out the best way to explain Churnkey to people, like at you know uh, happy hours and cocktail parties, whatever it is. And um, I think the best way to explain it is uh, if you've ever gone to cancel a subscription, which is everybody's done this now. You go to the cancellation page to cancel a subscription, and they say, "Wait, are you sure you want to go?" And they ask you a couple questions, and they try to save you with that perfect offer. That's what Churnkey does behind the scene. We power cancellation flows for uh, really high volume subscription businesses. So. Uh, it's been a lot over the last seven to eight years. We've jumped around quite a bit, but just kind of following the trail that was put in front of us each step of the way. For sure. Well, and you know, like you mentioned, you've started several 
businesses, online businesses. And from what I can tell, they're, they're basically all SaaS products. What is it about that way of approaching business, software as a service, that really appeals to you where you keep kind of coming back to that as a business model, meeting different needs, serving different kinds of clients, but always with that kind of recurring revenue business in mind? Like what's the, what's the benefit of that? What keeps drawing you back to that? I think the you know, selfish benefit is the predictability of uh, subscription businesses. We actually uh, subtitle our video captioning business. We released that early on and it was a pay per use model. So the more minutes that you purchase and pay and spend over time, uh, you, you would pay them as you used them up, almost kind of like an old school, like, you know, phone minutes bill or, uh, you know, minutes card for a phone. And it was a great business, but the problem with it was um, it, w- it wasn't predictable. One month we would have a ton of sales. The next month we wouldn't close many because those customers were still using their minutes and um, it was just very lumpy. It was hard to plan from a marketing standpoint of how how to invest in resources, how to hire people when the business is unpredictable and up and down. And so when we moved to the subscription model, we had to add a couple extra features for it to make sense as a a video editing subscription on top of just captions. Um, We were doing less revenue per month, but it was predictable because we could look at our average churn rate, our average growth rate, and then we could actually start investing in the business and we could hire people and uh, it de-risks things a little bit. So I think um, we, we prefer the predictability of it and the calmness, uh, which is not, you know, uh, that's probably not the right term because entrepreneurship can be so crazy <laughs> uh, regardless <laughs> of the type of business. But subscription businesses, when designed right, they can feel, um, you know, much more calm and predictable um, because you know that, a certain you can you can count on a lot of that revenue coming back. Yeah, calm is always a relative term. <laughs> yeah, with entrepreneurship. <laughs> right when I said that, I was like, "Oh gosh, that's 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 not right." <laughs> no, but but for everybody listening, whether owns businesses or they're in marketing, like they totally understand. It's like you you choose you're choosing your battle. Like you're choosing to not just like work for somebody else and and cut a paycheck. Like you're trying to build something, and there's always going to be a certain amount of risk involved in that. But the more that you can uh, de-stress your day-to-day, like how mm-hmm. you approach the business and how you long-term plan, because, you know, cash flow prediction, that's huge for investing in overhead and in personnel to run the business, especially if it's a high overhead services oriented business. You got to know what you're going to make three months from now in order yeah. to plan for that. So, you know, you'll have the money for that. Yeah, we we came, a lot of the co-founders um, that every cap table has been a little bit different from all of our companies, but it's all kind of originated. We all worked together in a services business here in Charleston and we did, you know, product and development work for other software companies. And it, we enjoyed it and it was a great company to work for, but we saw a lot of the downsides of the services model um, and just personally, it was not a good fit for us. And like what we wanted to do, we felt much more like creators versus, um, you know, consultants and deliverers or operators. Um, so I I think that's kind of what spurred it. And then it just always became, it became such a great fit that we just, we stuck with it as much as we could. Now you've said our, a few times describing these businesses, has it been the same group of co-founders for each of these different businesses or, or talk to me about that because, you know, it's, not uncommon for businesses to have co-founders, uh, but if you've been able to maintain a consistent group of people that builds collective wisdom over time, then you know you you can really accelerate the the things that you learn and applying them to the next business. So I'm curious about 
your experience with co-founders? It's been interesting in that every company does not, none of our companies, we've, we've built five over the last eight years. None of them have the same cap table, but every one of them shares some similarity with another one in the cap table. So good example is one business, one of the co-founders has just had their second kid and they just could not take on the risk anytime that year. So they sat that one out, but then they came back for the new, they're on, you know, now on the Chernkey, on the Chernkey team. So it's been kind of this rotating roster that, um, you know, in the time and place when the company is getting started, we all kind of look around and see who's available, who wants to take the risk. Um, Because we've always taken the approach that, you know, equity in a early stage business is compensation for risk. So if you're not willing to take, you know, take the time and the sweat equity or, or, or put in, or put in some money, um, then you don't get as much equity. And so we've always had this just really fair approach. Um, and it's wound up just, um, you know, in hindsight, it, it would have been really amazing if we had known all this was going to happen. We could have created a holding company and then everybody owns a part of that. And then each product has like an LLC sub company. And we could have done this kind of umbrella structure, but we've just been figuring this out as we've gone. And so we've just had to look around at that time and moment and see who's available. I'm the only one that is a, that, that's on every one of the cap tables. Um, and some of them, you know, majority and minority, um, so yeah, it's been really interesting and we, we definitely, I wouldn't say we designed it or drew it up this way. It's just kind of how it worked out, but I'm extremely lucky. Uh, and I use the word our all the time because it, it is a collective group um, across the board. And I've been so lucky to have just great co-founders and extremely high levels of trust, which as I look back on, you know, what makes a great co-founder, that's really the one thing that just... It's it's it has to be there. The trust you're basically sharing bank accounts with um, with other people, and we've even had I've even had co-founders um, actually in Chernkey, Scott Herf, who you all can find on he's uh, runs our podcast and it's a great LinkedIn page if you want to look him up. Um, we actually worked together for a year and a half without ever meeting in per- in person. Uh, we just met last summer for the first time, um, and so again, just going back, I trusted my other co-founders that he was going to be the right partner. And it turned out he has. And so it's been a really interesting uh, collection of people in um, different situation over the years, but we're making it work. Yeah, that's that's the world of uh, remote work, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's just everyone's got a distributed team now where especially if you're in an online space or have an online business, because then you can work from anywhere and you can hire from anywhere, which is really great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We are covering we've got a partner in London. Our Scott, our chief product officer, is in San Francisco. Uh, sorry, he, he's in Santa Monica. And then Nick, my other co-founder, lives about 400 yards away from me. So we are just have a weird <laughs> spacing setup. Yeah, for sure. Now, before we jump into Chernkey, I want to talk about Wave for a second, uh, simply because that's the company that I have the most personal knowledge about from when you were working on Wave. I was working at Buzzsprout. And so there was certainly some overlap there. Uh, and the thing that I want to ask you about with Wave is is one on the product side, but then also on the like the business model and how you kind of evolved it over time. What was the initial problem that you were fixing for podcasters when you initially started Wave back in 2017, 2016, 2017 mm-hmm. uh, as a product? And this was at a time where podcasting was starting to gain traction, but really hadn't hit the the COVID just massive acceleration yet. 
Uh, what was the opportunity that you spotted and what was the problem that you were solving with that product? So a little backstory on that, the company we had built before, which was a social audio network, uh, we had a lot of users that were recording audio clips and talking to each other about different topics. We were trying to build like an audio version of Reddit was kind of the idea back then. Um, and we had this problem that all of these users were, they were like leaving a one to two minute little, we're calling like little mini podcasts. And the content was fantastic. Some of these guys were really funny or really smart. And we were, our thought was, well, if we could just take this audio and put it on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, other people could see how much fun people are having on our app and they'll click through the link to go download it. So uh, Nick spent a weekend um, building kind of what was the early versions of audiogram is kind of the term that was starting to come out. And uh, we built it and started using it. And after two to three months, we had to shut that old company down because we were just ran out of money. And uh, about the same time, though, podcasters were seeing our post on social media and saying, I don't want anything to do with your app, but how'd you do that? How did you make the the audio, you know, waveform on Instagram? And that's kind of the light bulb went off. And we're like, oh, man, because we had a lot of podcasters that were users of our app. Um, and so we shut the company down. The next month, we launched just a really basic version of uh, the audiogram generator and we got our first customers within two weeks. And I mean, it was a slow grind of uh, customer acquisition early on, but um, that's where the whole idea came from. And then uh, it was it was pretty easy for us to build some templates out and let customers just share audio really quickly. And they paid a few dollars a month. But what we found out was, um, and this was kind of our entrance into the creator um, industry, is that these podcasters really, really wanted to look different and stand out from other people on social media because it was their brand. This was kind of, you know, early influencer days. Um, we were just really starting to learn about that whole world. So when we built functionality for uh, our podcast users to customize their design with like a drag and drop Canva like interface, that's when it started clicking. And we, it became less about the audio being shared and more about letting the podcaster create a brand around their audio that's being shared. Um, and then that's when the pricing model really started working out because we would let customers save a certain number of designs. We would have um, kind of pro style templates that they could use that would look way different than others, um, than our free users. And then the audio animation, uh, we really focused on creating very unique audio animations so much so that they could interact with the design. So like um, circles and swirls that would move over a circular logo. Um, so when we really dialed in on this idea of customization and making sure that all of these assets looked really good at the end of the day, that's when it started taking off because we, it just stood out from all the competition. Yeah. If there's, there's really three big pillars with podcasting. When if you're thinking about like the core problems that podcasters face, one is how do I keep it going mm -hmm. and kind of like one A and one B are, how do I grow my audience and how do I make money? So, yeah. you know, wave was really well positioned to help solve that second problem of how do I grow my audience, which is how do I convert audiences and people that I have connections with on social media into podcast listeners and engage in the long form content by promoting shorter form content. What I'm curious about is you know, with Wave, you had a freemium subscription model, right? Mm -hmm. There was a free plan that people could try out. And then the business plan, the way it made money is that eventually a certain percentage of them turned into paid subscribers. 
what was the strategy there? How much of your marketing was devoted towards driving free signups? How much of it was driving awareness of the pro and premium features, but then kind of as an aside saying, oh, but you can try it for free if you're not sure. And then what were some of the strategies that you used to convert free users into paid subscribers so you can build that MRR and the, uh, you know, the backbone of the business, so to speak? Yeah, that's you're getting at the the, the the hardest problems that we worked on that in churn, because the way that we set it up resulted in a ton of volume. And then we had to go fight churn all the time. But uh, basically, the way that we structured it is we focused heavily on the freemium model and driving as much traffic as we could to that free trial, uh, the, the freemium plan. And we tried all the different variations that you had just mentioned. Um and the what we landed on that was the most effective was a completely free plan where you had a limited number of videos per month. And then the, the key for us was the watermark because customers, um, that that's really w- what we found split our free and our paid customers was whether or not they wanted, would be okay with the watermark on the video because there were a lot of free users that they were totally fine with that. They just wanted to get it out. It looked good. And oh yeah, sure. There's a little logo there. Um, and those were really weren't our best customers. Our best customers were the ones like, no, this is my brand. This is not yours. And I'm willing to pay to have that taken off. Um, so it was essentially, that was really kind of what, what drove a lot of the conversions. Um, and it worked really well. And, um, I, you know, there's always going to be some customers that kind of felt like that wasn't the best way to do it, but the numbers over and over again told us that, um, you know, those customers that converted with the watermark, they were healthier customers that stayed longer term versus, you know, doing it based on certain usage or different features, things like that. So I want to follow up on that because that is a big problem with any kind of subscription model. And we'll, we'll get into the churn piece here in a second. I'm going to pick your brain on all that kind of stuff, but you know, trying to figure out what is that balance of not turning people off with the product decisions that you make, but incentivizing the right behavior that's in their best interest in addition to yours and having those incentives align where if they're really serious about your products, you know, and my guess would be the 80 to 85% of all your customer service requests came from free customers, not from premium customers. And so there's also like a cost associated with those free customers. Definitely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up customer support because when you go heavily free on a, on a freemium model like that, uh, and going back to the, uh, the name of your podcast, uh, honest marketing or honest bu- business building, you need to support those customers. You don't want to just use them as a conversion tactic. So if you're going to go that route, you need to, and we did that. We had, we had a, a uh, full-time customer support rep that was there, um, nine to five business hours, Monday through Friday, ready to help anybody and everybody, regardless of they were paid or not. And what we actually saw is some of the best, con- if you just looked at the free users that talked to support, that conversion rate was crazy high because they felt like they were getting the help, you know, you know they actually felt like there was some level of service there. Um, so I think that's a great point to bring up support because if we didn't do that and we just kind of hung back and just literally tr- treated it like a spreadsheet to tweak numbers on. Um, I, I don't think it would have been as successful. And I think, I think our brand would have probably hurt long-term with that. Well, and you'll see subscription software and especially enterprise level solutions where like the lower plans don't actually have access to direct customer support. It's only when you get into like a middle and higher, it's like, oh, you actually have someone you can talk to to, to 
fix your problems. Otherwise, here's our FAQ section. Go figure it out. I've never been a big fan of using support as a conversion leverage point. It's like everybody should get a pretty good level of support uh, or you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be marketing to them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you built wave, you had a, you know, you, you grew it to a certain level and then you were able to exit from that into Turnkey. And from what I gather, understand about how that acquisition and valuation went versus leveraging into Turnkey, these, these two things are actually pretty interrelated. Where so so talk to me a little bit about that because a lot of business owners think about well maybe I'll sell my company one day, uh you know but it's one thing to say I want to sell it it's another to position it as valuable to somebody else. So how much of a component was reducing churn on that product in the eventual valuation of that company, and then we'll we'll talk about Turnkey and what you're doing now. So it, it was a huge component to our valuation. And we found out the hard way by jumping in two acquisition talks that started off great. And we knew our churn wasn't great. So we didn't bring it up, but it comes up when you sell a company, you go through due diligence and any smart buyer is going to you know turn over every stone before they take that risk. Uh, and churn would always come up and it was always the red flag. And a good lesson that we learned was if there is something wrong with your business, uh, not only it, or, or is the buyer going to find it, but they're going to use that as leverage to drive the price down. It's, you know, it seems simple, but at the time it was like we were just so excited and we had happy ears and you know we would always just be so optimistic. Um, so after that second time, we decided, well, let's just get to work on our churn. Like if we want to sell this business one day, we need to make sure that um, you know the churn's in as good a place as possible. And it's kind of interesting that in hindsight, the best way to grow your valuation is to build a company that you don't want to sell. One that's automated, that has low cost, that doesn't take a lot of work, that doesn't have big risks. And when you do all these things, you wind up with a great business that you really don't want to sell. But uh, just it was kind of an ironic thing to learn that like we finally get to this point and we're like, wait, should we just hold on to this for as long as we possibly can? Um, so anyway, that's kind of an uh, ironic side note we found. But um so when we got to work on churn, we we did a lot of things. We hired consultants for twenty, thirty thousand dollars contracts to dig into all of our positioning and customer feedback. Uh, we worked on UI. We worked on onboarding. We worked on um, emails. We we hired a copywriter for tons of money to like make sure our, we're, we're activating customers the right way. And all those things were great. And those are all parts of the churn puzzle. Um, and we were kind of following the playbooks that everybody, you know, that we were able to find um, out there that other people had written about. But the big moment that we found that our big aha moment was when we started working on our cancellation flow and asking customers why they were canceling. Again, it seems simple, but it's not something people did back then. You usually just had a cancel button and that was the end of it. And then so we would ask customers why they were canceling and then we would ask them if they would stay for a discount. And we had this moment where when we just launched it and within a day, because we had we had I can't really remember the numbers, but it was thousands of customers going, I would say like hundreds of customers canceling per month um, at a, at a 10 to 11% churn rate. Uh, so every day there's like, you know, customers going through there and just that day we saw 40, like 30% saved right then. And we're like, wait a second, every customer that's clicking the cancel button doesn't not a lot of them want to cancel, but there's a good portion of them that actually don't want to cancel and are just looking for another arrangement. And so we kind of went from this 
place of thinking that optimizing your cancellation button is like, you know, kind of, um, what do they call it? Dark, not dark art, but there's um, a dark usage pattern, like in design that like, we kind of felt like, Oh, I don't know if this is going to be good or not to realizing that like, Oh wait, actually we're helping our customers find a better arrangement with us as a company. Um, and we're doing it on a personal level. It's almost like kind of automated bartering to a certain degree that says, Hey, well, we're willing to offer, you know, this much. And because you've been a good customer, we'll offer you, you know, even more interesting packages because we value your business. Um, so it was just that aha moment that like, Oh my gosh, there are so, there's so much opportunity here in the cancellation flow to help reset expectations with customers uh, remind them of the value they were getting. A lot of customers just, they're canceling because they haven't used your product in a month. They saw the bill and they're just gut reaction. Like it's a very autonomous process. And then they get to the cancellation flow and they realize, oh, wait a second, there's another option here. Or, oh, I did use this last month and I might have a new project coming up. I'll just pause for a month. So I'm rambling at this point, but it, it was just this big moment where we realized this um, and we found out no one else was doing it. And uh, except for the big, like Netflix would have like a whole team doing this and they were real early Disney too. But when we were like talking to our peers, everybody was like, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. And so we were, our thought was, well, let's take all this and let's launch it as um, churnkey and we'll sell it to other businesses and man, we tried to run the same playbook from the previous companies. We're like, oh yeah, we'll do content marketing. We'll drive into the site. We'll have a free plan and total disaster from a business standpoint. <laughs> uh, we, this is really the, my last year and a half has been learning the difference between B2C and prosumer businesses and true B2B and making that transition, which has been just one of the hardest lessons I've learned, learned in business. Um, cause you know, you think you ha we thought we had it figured out. turns out we don't know anything about B2B. Uh, we're getting there now. So we've been making progress. So forward transition to the, to turnkey, what was the difference that you noticed in LTV and then your, your churn rate when you made those adjustments on the cancellation link? Cause you mentioned it was like 10, 11%, which is pretty high for, for a SaaS product. Um, we're, Ideally, you want to be in like that 3% range, but how are you able to affect those numbers tangibly when you started making adjustments on that cancellation link? Yeah. Once we got the cancellation flow fully customized and tested it in a lot of different ways, took a couple months. Uh, we were able to bring our churn rate down from 12% down to seven and a half, almost 8%. So the you know, full 4% swing almost. Um, and the biggest driver of that was pauses. And that's because podcasters do a lot of seasons and they also take time off on the holidays and they are price sensitive. So they do not want to pay a $9 bill if they are not doing an episode that month, but they also don't want to cancel and lose all their data. So that's where pauses we did between a one and three month pause. Uh, that was our highest and uh, our highest offer acceptance rate. And we were worried too, then that like, we were worried that people would take a pause, leave for two months and then forget about us and get charged and then like get mad and refund or chargebacks. But turns out like 80% plus of our customers actually came back and used the product um, and, and for their next podcast episode. So pauses were good. Discounts, obviously, for that segment, the DIY podcasters that really wanted to use us, they just needed a little, a lot of times they didn't, I don't know if they truly needed the discount, but they felt like the discount you know, made the value proposition just worth it enough. Um, and then um, technical support as well. 
because we would have a lot of customers that were trying to get their design exactly how they wanted it. They needed a couple pixels moved and they really just needed one of our support team members to look at their design. So that was another, those were the three big ones. And it turned out to be 35% of our canceling customers per month. So, you know, hundreds of those at, we were probably $14 average revenue per user. You can do the math and it's a, it's a good amount of monthly recurring revenue uh, that when you go to sell a business is valued at anywhere between two and six multiples. So like when you do the math, we, you know, it was a big swing in revenue. Um, so that's when we decided that this was an important problem to go help other customers, uh, other companies with. So we've talked a lot about your, your process, your journey with wave and your previous companies. Let's, uh, talk about turnkey here for a second and just real quick again, you know, cause this was probably 25 minutes ago that we talked about it. Uh, what is turnkey? What's the problem that you solve and who do you solve it for? Churnkey is a, a B2B SaaS company, and we help high-volume subscription businesses improve their retention uh, through different churn fighting tactics. A few of those are uh, cancellation flows to help uh, save customers at the point of cancellation, failed payment recovery campaigns, churn prediction, retries, and we've got a few other products as well that are coming out soon. So uh, we kind of started as just a cancellation flow tool and have been growing into a full-stack retention suite for subscription businesses. So you mentioned that uh, going from B2C to B2B has been a big adjustment. Uh, I've noticed that too, where, you know, my last company was B2C, my current company is B2B. And in some ways, I really love the B2B space. But in other ways, it's also, uh, it's, it's harder to, you know, it's not impossible but it's harder to build like large volume predictive models because you're not talking about like hundreds or thousands of new customers every single month. You're talking about like single or double digits. And it's a, just a much different landscape as far as predicting things and then even figuring out like what's the right messaging, what niche or vertical are you going to go after within the bigger industry that you're serving? What, what have been some of the biggest lessons learned that you've had doing sales and marketing in the B2B space compared to b2c with wave i think if i had to distill it all down to one concept is that when you sell to b2c and prosumers you're you're selling to people um, and you're really driving a person to a landing page to make a decision and they are looking at something and they are deciding do i want this yes or no but when you sell to a business you're selling to usually not just one person but you're selling to multiple you're selling to a group of people that they all have to decide, should we do this? And those two processes could not, I mean, they could not be more, more far apart. Um, so, you know, we, what we've had to just continually remind ourselves in B2B is it's really about the relationship and you got to pick up the phone and you got to talk to people where in B2C, you can just put up a landing page, run some AB tests, figure out, you know, what the trends are and, and, uh, you know, press go and, and iterate as you go where churn with B2B, the feedback loops are much slower because you actually need to have these conversations, sometimes not with one person, but sometimes with, with multiple people. And for whatever reason, this was just really tough for us, maybe because we felt like we had a lot of success the other way and that we could take a lot of these playbooks and run them in the B2B space. Um, but we have um, just kind of slowly been adjusting to it. And now we're in a really good spot. We're a sales-driven organization. We do a lot of content marketing, but it's really all to support the sales process. And now we are spinning up a customer success division 
that is now, um, you know, taking the handoff from sales and building that relationship even further to help, you know, sell more products and make sure customers are, are happy and healthy. Um, which uh, customer success in our previous businesses was not a thing. Um, Chernkey is actually interesting. It's kind of like simulating customer success at scale for B2C companies. But in B2B, you actually need to have a customer success team and somebody reaching out and talking to customers. So it's been, yeah, it's been totally different, but we're, we're growing to really love it because my job now basically is every day I, I, I get on a, a call with, you know, two to three uh, SaaS operators that are struggling with churn and they have a lot of pain and they're trying to figure out this really complicated problem that we've just been doing for such a long time. Um, it feels like it, the feedback loops are slower, but they're more profound when you can actually like help somebody figure out their biggest issues on a 45 minute call. So yeah, it's just been very different, but it's, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. That, uh, service as sales is the thing that I love the most about B2B where it's, it's really not about the transactional element of how do I get this person's credit card so I can charge them $10 a month. It's much more about what is the core problem that you're dealing with? And, and if I have the expertise and my business is designed to help you, like, let's figure out how do we make this work? Cause like, this is really costing you a lot. And if I can come in and serve you and help you, like, I want to make that happen. And so it becomes much more like you're, you're on the same team fighting the battle together instead of like the more traditional way that people think about salespeople, which is combative and they're trying to take advantage of me or make, make me make a decision that it's not in my best interest and where you've really solved it. A, huge need that is a very felt need with a lot of business operators and SaaS companies where churn is one of those key metrics that they look at every single month and think, you know, how much more could we have made if we hadn't churned so many of our customers? Uh, and so, so what, what are the, the, the mistakes that you're seeing, the common mistakes that you're seeing with businesses that have higher churn than they should, where you come in and right away, it's like, here are the red flags that we see that we need to address first and foremost to get you back to baseline? That's a real good question. It's tough because there's just so many variables. I would say the short, the shortest answer, or, well, the thing that we have to do before that is <clears throat> look at the customer's pricing model, which is, this has been really interesting as we've dip, um, dove into churn over the years is, um, you, you know, a, a feature-based pricing model versus a usage-based pricing model, and then maybe put another um, seat-based pricing model. All three of those companies are going to have very different variables and metrics that drive their churn. Um, usage is a really great one. <clears throat> uh, usage-based models are really interesting because they have extremely high reactivation rates. So we can look at a um, a customer like a um, you know, video editing company or you know somebody where you're paying each month for access to credits or something like that. Um, we can look at a really high churn rate, 15, 17, 18%. But if we can jump in their Stripe dashboard and take a look at their reactivation rates, if those are over 20, that's where we're seeing like, okay, you're just missing. There's a gap here in between customers canceling and then coming back. That's where the kind of going back to the pauses or discounts. Um, so it's really just diving into the business model that they're using and then looking at all their different metrics and trying to figure out what's, what's out of the norm uh, from them. Uh, B2B is a good example where B2B is going to be much more of three to 
one to five percent churn rates if your average revenue per user is over two hundred dollars plus. Um, so those customers, it's much less about the numbers and metrics, and it's more about the feedback that customers are giving and the opportunities where somebody can jump in to be really helpful. Um, so I think that's probably what we probably need to do a better job of documenting all of these different use cases because there are trends, but they're very specific to different pricing models and industries. Um, the one that just really jumps out is I'm, we probably have two to three AI companies signing up a week because they are growing so fast and their churn rates are generally between 20 and 30% uh, for a lot of these newer AI companies, uh, but they're growing 70, 80%. So they don't really care. And so the biggest red flag that we see is when a customer is not addressing that high churn because the issue is they're going to come back to us eight to 12 months down the road when it's really a problem. And you the, really the only customers that get churnkey in place, like on day one is uh, repeat founders, it's people that have done this before and they know what's coming and they just want churnkey in place uh, early on. But so a lot of times it's hard to kind of go back. You can't really fix churn after the fact um, you can go back and look and find trends and data. But once it's ha once it's happened, it's, it's happened. And then how are you addressing churn at Churnkey? Like, how are you, you know, uh, drinking your own Kool-Aid and, and putting these best practices together for your own B2B business to continue to, to serve your, your clients at a high level and meeting needs above and beyond what their investment level is, but also charging enough that you can profitably sustain that level of service for them. It's interesting. We've had, uh, we have net negative churn, which means our customer base grows more than it contracts, which is something that, that doesn't exist in the B2C world, which um, has, that, that's a really big advantage of, of uh, the B2B business. Uh, but we actually have had a couple of customers that have had to cancel because they've gone out of business or whatever the situation may be. And we can't use Churnkey at Churnkey. It's kind of like Inception with Stripe. Like Stripe can't have an app that then lives within our app and it just like breaks the whole system. Um, so we have to actually talk to every customer, which is what B2B companies should do. Churnkey is not a good fit for, for, for Churnkey. Um, but I would say, you know, our biggest focus has been, um, you know, customer acquisition and B2B is hard. It takes a long time. Sales cycles are multiple months. Uh, pricing is really hard. It's something you have to, we do a lot of custom pricing just because it's hard to, you know, just have one number on a landing page that fits for everybody. Uh, but the biggest th the biggest return that we're getting is with customer success. It's basically, you know, we're kind of realizing that like the, the price that somebody pays for Churnkey uh, up front, it's always going to be lower than the actual value they could get later. So we want to get them started. We want to solve their initial pain points of why they come to us. It's usually around the cancel flow or the failed payment recovery. And then as we build that relationship and we have their billing data and we understand their business more, we can actually start looking at other ways to use the product to be more effective because most of the, the, the really effective churn fighting methods it's not why they came to us, but it's something that we find. And so it really turns into that kind of collaborative relationship where we can expand them into different products um, and save them more money than they thought initially. So, um, and, and we're starting to figure out our pricing to match that as well, to have like, you know, maybe we need kind of a um, quicker starter package to kind of, you know, get some churn tools out there. And then as you grow, you move into kind of this more platform use um, with our team that uh, something else that we're launching is what we're calling uh, proactive support. 
So instead of customer us waiting for customers to ping us about stuff, we have customers support reps that jump into their account and flag improvements that could be made. And we send them to the customer. Uh, we're getting really good feedback on that. And it's not as expensive as like a full-on services agreement. It's kind of this person that's in the background, just checking on your account and sending you updates. Um, so that's been another good tactic that's been helpful. Yeah, no, th- those are all really great. And, you know, that that aligns with, you know, what I've learned, both from other people that really speak well into the space, into the B2B selling space, and just my own personal experiences. You know, once you get past the things that are outside of your control, like a business going out of business, it's like, well, we can't, we can't fix that, right? If you can't get users, you can't get sales, we can't fix that for you. Uh, the number one reason that I've seen B2B clients leave is perceived indifference. That it's it's not even about you're not doing what you said you would do, but we don't really feel like you're invested in our success anymore. Maybe initially you were, but now we're just in another account and you move on to bigger and better fish. And so this those kind of strategies, the proactive support and following up and giving people opportunities and clients opportunities to see other things you could do together. I think all those things communicate the opposite of that, which is you're not just another client account. You're not just another number. We actually do want you to be successful and want to do anything we can to make you successful. Yeah, so I, I think like that. that. That's what, was really that what was that term you used again for that? Perceived indifference. Perceived indifference. I, I like that because a lot of our customers set up Chernkey. And then once it's in place, it just kind of does its thing. You don't have to really log in every day. And so we'll have customers that just kind of you know, go away for three, four months, even though we're emailing them and then they come back one day and, you know, the expectations all of a sudden are very different for whatever reason. And it's that, yeah, that same kind of situation where we got to find ways to be proactive and get in front of that. Uh, Cause it's eventually going to come, uh, you know, one way or the other. Um, we, we, I just reminds me of a um, business quote that I heard once was just the concept of, I want my pain now. Like if there's an issue here, <laughs> and you're not feeling great about your account. Like I want my pain right now. I don't want it down the road. So let's like, let's address this right now. Yeah. Tell me so I can fix it. You know, help me, yeah. help me help you. Right. <laughs> For sure. Uh, well, Barrett, I really appreciate everything you share, just the inner workings of what you're working on with Turnkey, all your lessons learned. Uh, where can people go to learn more about Turnkey? Uh, where can they connect with you online? Where are the best places for people to go and connect with what you're doing? churnkey.co is uh, if you want to learn more about churnkey and if you want to chat with us or just get connected with us i'd say linkedin is the best place i'm pretty sure i'm the only baird hall on linkedin i checked a couple (laughs) weeks ago Um, so you can find me on linkedin really easily and we're doing our best to be more engaged and um, just have more content on linkedin and uh, easy to track down there awesome thank you so much baird really appreciate you being here Awesome. Thanks. So my number one takeaway from my conversation with Baird is make sure you have a conversation with people on the way out. When you have clients, when you have customers that have been with you, have been using your service, using your product, and they decide to leave, have a conversation with them about why they're leaving. Don't let them just go out the back door, say, hey, what have we missed? What can we do? Why are you canceling? Because like he said, sometimes it's not that they don't want to use your service, but there are just some circumstances around their life, how they're using their pro- your product and service, and if you just offer them an alternative or simply remind them about why they're using you in the first place, you can save those customers, you can save those clients and build sustainable revenue in your business. So don't overlook churn, don't overlook the people that are leaving your business and focusing on the shining object of new customer acquisition Because at the end of the day, it's both those things working together that is going to help your business grow.
Make sure you check out Churnkey. Make sure you follow Baird on LinkedIn to connect with him and see everything that he's working on. Uh, but appreciate you being here. Hopefully these interviews are really insightful, really helpful. And until next time, be honest. Bye.